Hey, everybody, it's Ryan Ripley. Wanted to get a new offering in front of you as soon as possible, evidence-based leadership. And so, as you all know, Todd Miller, myself, and Will Seeley, we're big on evidence-based management. We want to apply it to the leadership space. We all know that modern managers face complex challenges every day. You're juggling a lot of needs, your direct reports, your stakeholders, your customers, they all need constant attention. What we want to do is help you manage that. We want you to use information and data to make good decisions around all of these areas so that we're delivering the right thing at the right time for the right customer. And we know that we're doing that because we're using data and evidence to validate all the things that we're doing. And not only that, we're not just looking at value, but we're looking at our capabilities as an organization. Can we deliver on time? Can we innovate effectively? Do we have too much tech debt? Do we have too many things in process? Are we unable to deliver when the market demands that we do? We look at all of these things with evidence-based management. We merge that into a leadership uh, mindset and lens, and we enable you to make new and better decisions repeatedly based off of the data that you're collecting within your organization. It's exciting stuff. We hope you can join us. Visit agileforhumans.com forward slash EBL course. Join us in one of these offerings. We think you're going to love it. Hope you can join us. Use Agile for Humans, the number four to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Hey everyone, Ryan Ripley here. Before we get started today, I wanted to tell you about one of my favorite Agile conferences, The Path to Agility. It's May 25th and 26th in Columbus, Ohio at the Ohio Union, that is on the campus of Ohio State University. Here to help us learn more about this great event is conference chair, Faye Thompson. Hey, Faye. Hey, Ryan. Uh, we're really excited about the path this year. We have Ellen Gottesdiener, Gil Broza, and Jason Womack as some of our keynotes. We also are featuring Johanna Rothman, Michael Ma, Christopher Avery in our speaker lineup. Uh, we have a new feature this year. We're offering four maker spaces where people can learn about new technologies in a hands-on way. Uh, it's really rounding out to be a great event. Uh, tickets are still on sale. And if you're interested, you can register at www thepathtoagility.com. Yeah, the Central Ohio Agile Association, or COHA, as many of us uh, know them, they organize this event. They put it together wonderfully. It's at a beautiful venue. And unlike a lot of other Agile conferences, uh, the tracks cover the entire spectrum of Agile software development from leadership to craftsmanship. And I'll even be there as a speaker and also podcasting throughout the event. Please be sure to stop by and say hello. This really is one of the great Agile conferences of the year, and we all hope to see you there next week. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome to Agile for Humans. All right, welcome to this week's episode of Agile for Humans. I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. Joining me today, Troy McGinnis has agreed to uh, come on the show and talk about his accepted talk, Data-Driven Coaching, Safely Turning Team Data into Coaching Insights. And so, Troy, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely. With, uh, with such an interesting topic, really couldn't resist at least asking to see if you'd come on and join us. It seems like a, a wonderful combination of promoting safety on a team, looking at real data, 
and then generating some coaching insights that will help make uh, everyone's lives and work better. So seemed very congruent with what some of our past episodes and some of our some of the things that we hold dear on this podcast. So really appreciate you jumping on the show and uh, and sharing at least some bits of the talk. We won't ask you to give away the punchline, of course, but uh, really appreciate you joining us to, to talk about these really interesting topics. No, it's great to be here. Um, I love talking about metrics, so um, bring it on. So with this particular talk, uh, you're certainly looking for coaching insights, and that was what initially caught my attention. So when you're thinking about driving towards finding these insights, you know, what are the metrics that you find most valuable? How do you go about collecting those? Uh, that's a great question. Now, the main basis of what I find about using metrics is, is you can't use just one. What you're trying to get the teams to do is trade something they're doing really well at for something they're doing poorer at and understand that they're making these these intelligent trade-offs. So what what we tend to do is is show a matrix of of metrics, normally just four. We want a measure of responsiveness, how fast the team can respond to we need something, uh, a productivity metric about how how they're actually delivering and is the pace increasing or decreasing over time. Um, a measure of quality, which is something you're often always trading against with productivity, and a measure of predictability. How well can I assume that your current productivity is going to continue in the future? So what what we tend to like to do is always show at least one or two metrics from each of those categories. And if you do that, then what you're helping the team do is understand that, well, given that we're way above the company average on productivity, but we're trending poorly on quality, let's let's spend a sprint or two understanding how we can improve our quality, even if it does impact our productivity. And so it's about balance. It's about creating those uh, those wise trades. So it seems like over a longer period of time, so let's say you're doing this sprint over sprint for a while, the insights you're generating are really where the boundaries are. Is that fair? Yeah, that's right. And it's more about the the trend than the individual measure. So as long as if you have a poor sprint or, or, or week, as long as the team can reflect on, we understand why that occurred and that's unlikely to happen in the future versus we understand why it occurred and unless we do something proactive to fix that, it's going to continue to degrade. That's the type of insight we're trying to help the team make. And then we're helping them make a measured adjustment so that they don't decimate one of the other categories of, of, of important metric. Do you have an example of w- working with a team where you, you had to address that kind of trade-off? And perhaps can you go into some of the responses of the team and, and how they felt about giving up a strength to perhaps improve a weakness and how some of those dynamics play out? <laughs> well, I mean, we're taught from a very young age that we need to be really good at everything. Um, you know, the whole of our schooling system is about trying your hardest. It's not about just doing enough to get by. It's about being, excelling at what you do. I get that sort of quote from Michael Tardif, a, a coach here in Seattle. And and what we're so it's very difficult to get people to give up something they're really good at. They tend to be able to they tend to see something they're being better than the rest of the company on and want to decimate the company even more. They want to keep moving forward on, on, uh, on productivity, which, which the measure we, we, I tend to settle on is, is the throughput divided by the team size. So it's throughput normalized by how big your team is. So that's, that's a very hard one to get people to trade. But what you'll see if you overdrive how fast you're trying to get things through a system, you'll start seeing that your predictability gets wild. So one sprint you get maybe 10 stories finished. 
and the next sprint you get maybe one finished, and the next sprint you get maybe uh, 11 finished, you start seeing these oscillations. So often it's about, well, what if you what if you only chose to do five things next sprint and make sure that we can continue to do you know five or six every sprint? So balance out that that average. So that's normally the starting point is to get people to stop trying to overdrive their system and leave some slack so that they can improve the predictability. That's a selfish one for me because once they get predictable on any of those, especially on the throughput measure, uh, forecasting becomes a lot easier to do. Yeah, it's amazing how a little bit of slack makes uh, makes for a little more predictability. It's counterintuitive, but it seems to work out almost every time. That's right. So from the Kanban and the Scrum side, you know, we start sort of on the Kanban side, we would sort of saying, why don't we start introducing some whip limits on what we want to do concurrently at the same time? And on the Scrum side, we might say, you know, uh, we're doing a forecast of what we can do here. Let's um, let's fill what we think we can do, and then take one risky thing off. And once we achieve that, let's um, leave the risky thing for the first thing we do in the next sprint. So it's helping the team realize that they're trading some productivity short-term for predictability long-term. And over five or six sprints, it's going to be exactly the same. But now we've got two stable measures, not one randomly oscillating measure. If the client would rather have predictability over that productivity, then it's a good trade to make. But context is always important, right? If they want the productivity instead, then then I guess you shift away from the predictable model. Or is that... No, that's, ex- that's exactly right. I mean, what, what, you're, what we're helping and coaching the teams in understanding is the business. And if you've just done a release uh, or, or say you're running a healthcare marketplace website for the government, <laughs> you know, when it goes live, you, you know that productivity doesn't matter so much at the moment. You need to have a lot of people perhaps sitting idle waiting for critical issues so that they can be resolved. And when we do that with, with uh, rescue services and fire services all the time, we're okay having a lot of slack in place for much higher response time, m- much lower response time, getting people you know, we, we don't want to wait to get someone out of a burning house. So we pay a price by having firemen sit essentially idle. You know, they've got other jobs to do, but they're jobs they will trade away to go and do something more important. So we want to help the teams understand the context of the business. And you're right. Sometimes predictability, sometimes response time trumps productivity and predictability because we just need to get it done to uh, to keep to, to solve a fire to solve an emergency in, in in our software terms which might be an outage during um, during a long weekend sales event or something like that well and I think it's an interesting insight because I think a lot of people look at uh, the metrics and collecting metrics as you know a way to to measure and manage a team as opposed to ensure alignment with business value and, and I think it's important to point that out that you know the metrics, uh, that teams collect and that uh, product owners collect can also help with that alignment factor. And it's not necessarily a, you weren't productive enough. It's no, we, we value X uh, factor and we want to make sure we're, we're pushing to that. And I think that gets lost in uh, some of these conversations sometimes. Yeah. We were exactly productive enough to deliver the predictability and responsiveness you needed to keep the business running is a much different statement than um, just go faster. When you, when you say just go faster, there's you know, everyone leaves off the second sentence. If we do that, X will suffer. 
And is X more important than going faster? And at different times of the business, it is. That along with context. And so I, I think those are two important factors to take place or to take into account when looking at the overall metrics discussion. I think in our industry, and, and Troy, tell me if I'm wrong, there are camps that would say all metrics are evil, they lead to bad things, they aren't agile. But I think in some cases used used in a way that where the goal is to enhance safety, facilitate transparency, and to increase trust, they can be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, you're you're always on dangerous territory when you use the word no, always. <laughs> you know, there's always a there's a continuum of of um, in every every measure and aspect to to everything in agile, and uh, so of course you could misuse metrics, and of course. People have and always and will continue to misuse metrics. Um, But what's the alternative? You know, we want to then make sure that we don't not use metrics just because all metrics are evil, but then don't look at where we could build a case to represent and communicate that we need something to do something. Yeah, I mean, if you are just measuring a single single metric or it's, it's invasive, classic ones might be, uh, that I've seen is where uh, in the lunch rooms, in the meal areas, was a a screen listing the developers and the number of defects they had open. And now, you know, of course, that that does have a short term win. You start; it, it appears as if the defects start being completed, and they they probably are. But you end up developing this back channel. You don't create a defect for your friends because it puts them on the lunchroom TV screen, you go and put a post-it note on their monitor. So you actually start losing data. You actually start only thinking you're making an impact and you start people start hiding the bad news. And if you do things like that, yes, I would sort of say probably no metric is better than that metric. But don't do that understand that that <laughs> that the moment that you start measuring a metric it has a half-life of about three months before that measure is probably useless alone so you've always want to try and measure an ensemble of metrics and you especially want to show that ensemble when they're competing for the same resources quality and productivity are always complete competing against each other so you want to always show them together so that people can see that if they even if they do try and gain one the other one's going to catch up with them so when, when we talk about the gaming of a metric and even some of the misuse, you know, what are the, some of the practices that you've seen and that you've incorporated into your coaching that have helped to alleviate some of those issues and to avoid uh, some of those worst practices that we just talked about? Well, the number one is always you're interested in the trend over time, not the, not the number. So most of the charts I use for coaching have no numbers on the axis. Because the numbers are irrelevant, it's the trend of trend of your team's progress on quality or productivity or predictability. Um, so the, you can leave off the axis. It doesn't matter what the score is. And if you know the signs you have on the streets to show you your current speed in in a car on the road. Um, you know, in the early days, they used to show uh, how fast you were going. So it was always a race to see how high you could get the number. So even though you're in a 25 <laughs> zone, I bet I can get that to 40. Um, you know, that was solved by just sort of um, stopping measuring at the speed limit. At 25, it just flashes. You get you can get the same impact without showing people the absolute number. 
you just want to let them understand where they are now versus where they were. And sometimes what's what's useful is to show where the rest of the company is against your team. So you can sort of see that you're ahead of the you're actually above the company trend for quality, um, which helps explain why your productivity might appear lower than it uh, than it would be if you were paying a higher price for for injecting more defects or or technical debt. So first thing is leave off the leave off the numbers. Second thing is always use a trend. Uh, third thing is is make it fair. Don't if you just took the throughput number, then of course larger teams will always appear to be doing better than smaller teams within the same company. So you want to start normalizing all of the measures to make them roughly make them so that size doesn't matter. When we're comparing metrics across teams and we do the normalization, what can what can help take into account complexity of work that the teams are working on? Because I can see a situation where, you know, perhaps one team A, uh, they've been together forever, they're working on a well understood domain, and they they're clearly going to in most cases, do better than perhaps a team B that was newly formed, uh, working in a more uh, complex or chaotic uh, domain that's not as well understood, and, and it will take them time to to reach the cohesiveness and some of the the other practices that team A, who's been together forever, and with the understanding of the of the domain, have achieved. So, when you're doing those kind of comparisons, is there a way to normalize? for complexity of work and cohesiveness of team, or is that something that just has to be called out in, uh, in some other way? No, I mean, you tend to end up with four or five different groupings of types of teams. Uh, and you see that very early on. You'll see that even with, so first of all, the team themselves, it doesn't really matter what the rest of the company is doing first and foremost. They, they, they worry just about the trends of the metrics within their team context. When they then are working out what they what might be a candidate for them to try and improve for the next sprint or the next sort of couple of weeks, now you want to sort of see, well, what are we doing excessively good against the company average against? Now, initially what happens is you'll see there'll be, when you actually, if you just plotted the line chart of these, every team with the same metrics normalized by size, there's sort of stripes, there's sort of groupings, and then you'll find that your operations teams or will be one sort of grouping. And then you'll see that the teams doing risky new innovation will be have another pattern, another sort of style of out of the four quadrants, they'll be strong on one and weaker on others. So now what you want to do is you want to start separating those out onto their own dashboard so that you're comparing like versus like. People get concerned when they feel like they're being unfairly judged. And it, that's not your intention. Your intention is to sort of say teams in the same context and environment as you are know something you don't know yet. So why don't you go and ask them what they're doing in their practices, which are getting their quality so high. So it's about finding people, teams you can go and ask advice from. So I think that's, that's probably the first time I've heard a great reason to compare team versus team. That kind of practice, I think, gets a lot of attention uh, from agile coaches in a negative way because of that fairness qualification that you threw out, that, that people want to be treated fairly, they want to be compared fairly. But I think the idea of grouping teams among the, the type of work that they're doing, and I think, like you said, statistically, from a data perspective, that will tend to, to show itself out uh, naturally, that they'll, they'll start banding uh, together. 
But the idea that you're generating an insight to basically say, look, this team's found an interesting balance between productivity and quality that we value. We're not, this isn't your performance review. We're not putting this on your assessment. What we're saying is go talk to them and see how they're achieving that balance and see if there's a practice you can bring back to your team. Uh, I think that's an interesting reason to compare teams across companies. So that's well, even if see, people are worried about being embarrassed. If you embarrass people, you've completely destroyed your metric program. So, you know, the other thing is you mentioned before how to make it sort of fair and how to avoid that embarrassing is there's no team names on on my dashboard. So when you're actually looking at your line, it, depending on who's logged in or who's looking at the data, you only get to see which line is yours then you can sort of go and sort of uh, investigate and find out, well, who's this other team which is doing much better than we are? So, of course, if someone wants to be malicious, they could be. But, again, it's, it's, it's irrelevant. The, the, don't go and put up on a dashboard, this is the team that's doing the best. <laughs> that's not what it's intended to be. The way the metrics, especially if you measure across the four dimensions I mentioned, responsiveness, productivity, quality, and predictability – it is actually impossible for any team to be excellent at all four. That that cannot happen because the their all of the measures are actually um, they they're they're anti-correlated. They work in opposite directions. So it's unlikely, even if you did in in a dashboard, that you're going to be worst across all four measures or best across all four measures. You might be best and worst at one or the uh, one out of the four but you're not going to be best or worst at all four. So gaming and that embarrassment comes up if you focus on a single metric and people game that one metric. So it's harder to do when, when you know, you've, you've got to try and balance a set of four metrics. Yeah, the four metrics that are, as you noted, that are in opposition. And, and so I think that's, an, that's also an interesting twist to it that you can't be excellent at all four. Like you're not trying to get the high score in all four categories. It's really alignment with business uh, values and, and business and business needs across the four, which I think is interesting. And then anonymizing it, you know, taking the team names off. Essentially, you're removing the the blame, the guilt, the the embarrassment. I think it gives you the shot at having the the three month half life on the metrics that you mentioned. That's right. And that's what you're trying to do. Um, and, you know, to me, the most mature teams will be down the middle of all four. So if I do have a team that's high, that's a coaching intervention moment. That's interesting. So I wonder if these metrics, do they go past the program level up into senior management? Or do you typically keep these with the coaches, uh, with the program leaders, so that they have the opportunity to make adjustments based on on what they've been asked to deliver but not necessarily exposing these dashboards or metrics higher up. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, these, these dashboards in the form that are useful for the team and coaching don't go any higher than probably the, the managers or the program management team just above a group of teams um, who are trying to look at how, how much do I think that this team is going to be able to continue the pace they're, they're, they're moving at. Um, and that's just so they get a bit of an understanding of risks. But yeah, this once you put across more than a single metric, you know, senior management get get a bit bit bored. There's no dollar signs here. It's hard for them to uh, <laughs> rationalize what they're what they're doing, what they what they mean. Or, or heaven forbid, they try to monetize it somehow, and then you're in for a, an even 
equally boring and, and probably a worse discussion, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, but I mean, what, what we can do though is um, on the forecasting side is uh, I can put a, a range on if a team is running in this variability of predictability versus this variability of predictability where A is 10 times worse than B, I can sort of put a dollar value on that about how much risk that's adding to the program about how late they might be, but you don't know yet. So we can put dollar values on each of these measures. So uh, that's often interesting because that often is the gateway to actually introducing, well, this is why you do Agile and why we need it, why we're most, first and foremost, we want a consistent pace. So I, I think you've brought up an interesting pivot point for us, and, and that's the forecasting discussion. So I think another talk that, uh, that you're going to be giving at Agile 2016 is forecasting using data quickly answering how big, how long, and how likely. Really interesting topic as well. In the forecasting space, the conversations quickly go into the estimates versus forecasting. Are they the same thing? Are they different? For the, the context of your talk, uh, where, are, where in that camp are you? Are, are estimates and forecasts equal? Are they separate kind of ideas? Or, or what, is, what is your take on that? I don't use story point estimates for forecasting. I find that they're they're not as good a predictor as what I can get through other measures, and the other measures I get are normally cheaper to obtain. So the rule of forecasting and statistics is when you have two measures that could be used to predict something in the future, you use the one that's cheapest to obtain. And story point estimates are one that's expensive to obtain and they're a cheaper alternative. So I'll start off with that statement. So I'm more on the on on the using data to forecast than estimating. But I, I'll, I'll now sort of go a little bit deeper on that to sort of say what happens is there's very different styles of teams based on the cycle times that they use for the tasks that they do. And if you're a team which doesn't have external dependencies, won't get blocked by uh, other teams to deploy or get assets like images or screen layouts, and the person that gets the work can do the work, estimates would be a, a good predictor of the future. But if you're in a set of teams and you're doing work that has a lot of potential delays that are unknowable in advance, that depend on alignment of the stars, like 10 other prerequisites being delivered before you can do yours, your chance that the estimate would be a good predictor of time would be like flipping 10 heads of a coin in a row. So where most teams are somewhere between the two. So my default stance is that the teams are in the latter and there's a lot of unknowable delays that affect time but not affect the actual hands-on effort of doing the work. And it's only if those two were in agreement that the hands-on time dictated the majority of the calendar time for delivery would estimates be worth doing. And that's a pretty well-known fact in other operational research fields since the 1970s and 80s. So we don't have a lot of the estimates conversations outside of the software world. I think that there are some teams where estimates would be useful, but they're the teams that don't need to estimate. And the teams which are, we're using estimates for, especially story point estimates, the way we're doing them at the moment, there are cheaper alternatives for forecasting. No, I, I think you've answered it well. And But the problem with answering a question well is that it generates follow-ups. Excellent. And so, uh, some of these cheaper methods, can you go into that? What do you think is a, a cheaper method to forecast some of the project work that uh, the teams do? 
uh, Larry Mascheroni, he was the he was the inventor of uh, the software development performance index. They're the four measures I mentioned earlier come out of Larry Mascheroni's work uh, when he was at Rally Development at the time. And I think Carnegie Mellon had a bit of uh, a bit of a hand in some research he did where he got ten thousand projects worth of data and analyzed them to sort of see is the folklore of agile and does it bear can we see that proof that it's working in the data and one of the observations which he did first thing you do when you get 10,000 projects is you start getting every measure that you can and I think he ended up with about a hundred different measures he could extract out of the data that they could get from those projects and of course the first one he wanted to look at was story point estimates versus versus sort of future sort of delivery forecasts and he found that throughput and velocity were gave very similar outcomes now the advantage of throughput is that you don't have to have all the work estimated you can just count the number of items so throughput if it gives the same forecasting predictive ability as velocity and story points Throughput is a better choice to use because it's cheaper to obtain. And I find that time and time again because of the way we do planning poker using sets of uh, the Fibonacci sequence where there's sort of only five or six options to choose from, people tend to be centrally weighted. So I looked at 100 teams at another organization, another large organization, and the average will is 3.5 across 100 teams. So each team's average is 3.5, and the whole group's average is 3.5. So it wasn't so much that story point estimates were accurate. It was that the average of story point estimates was 3.5, and that projects out. So throughput is whether you use 1 or 3.5 in the formula, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) So I tend to think that uh, that's an example where throughput – is a better way of forecasting than story points and velocity. Now, how do we get throughput and how do we get the number of stories that you want to complete over a period of time? Well, that's where we sort of start using a sampling technique where we don't break down every epic we have. We break down 10 or 11 of them and we use the pattern of that 10 or 11 epics being broken down to extrapolate how many stories might be in the project. So with a new team... That's a, it's a common question that, that people ask. So they'll say, fine, we know that you have this team of nine people. You know that they have a, a huge history together. They understand the domain, and typically they get 10 stories done in a sprint. That's a forecasting exercise that we can all do as long as we have a prioritized backlog and we can stack that you know, two-week sprint, 10 stories, and we can all figure out a calendar and do simple addition, And which is why these metrics are, why forecasting is so wonderful, right? It is a, a very simplified process. But with a new team, you know, what are some of the things that you look at and some of the things that you do to help establish some kind of baseline uh, for how work could potentially be completed, at least on a calendar? At least on a calendar? That's great. So, so this is what I do. I, I, have, I have a set of spreadsheets which sort of help doing forecasting, and they're all, they're all free. So uh, hopefully you'll be able to put a link up to them. But the base, my base sort of work is you know, sort of three levels. One is a simple spreadsheet through forecast. Now, since you don't have historical data, um, what we get you to do is estimate a range of data. So if you said nine people there, I'd sort of say, well, let's go on the continuum that maybe everyone will get at least one story done per sprint. 
So you would tell the team, when you're choosing the size of work to split into a story, the goal is that, that at least you get at least one thing done for each sprint. And then some of those people will get maybe two things done. So what Monte Carlo forecasting allows you to do is be imprecise with your estimates, but still get a, a reliable answer. So we don't ask you to estimate the throughput as a number. We get you to estimate the throughput at a range. And with a brand new team, I might say between one item per team member to 1.5 items per team member. So my initial throughput estimate will be between 9 and 12 or 13. And what a Monte Carlo forecast does is that it plays out completing that project maybe a thousand times. And for every step of the way, it, w it randomly picks the throughput for that potential week um, somewhere between 9 and 14. And then it does that over and over and over again until it completes the project. And then it does another project over and over and over again by taking random samples from that range of values you specified. So the way you do forecasting with new teams is we don't expect you to be precise with your estimates of, and we expect the estimates to be ranges, not absolute values. And that means that we get, we don't get one answer of a result. We get a distribution of answers and then we pick where we're comfortable in that distribution of saying we're going to deliver honorable four. So if a thousand simulated project runs finished within six weeks, uh, we might sort of say, well, where did 80% of them finished? Well, 80% of them finished within five weeks. So we might say five weeks because we want, now we say we're 80, it's 80% likely that the project, given the knowledge we have now, will finish within five weeks. So it's about range estimates rather than the individual number. I'm assuming once we have real data, do you repeat the Monte Carlo process or at that point are you simply forecasting off of you know the two or three sprints that you've completed and, and still establishing a range? So let's say like sprints one, two, and three, they get you know nine, five, and, and 10. Are we now only worried about that, those numbers or are we plugging that into uh, another simulation to see how the next three sprints or the rest of the project could potentially go? Yeah, that's exactly right. You want to blend the data the actuals as they come in start outweighing the estimate. When I get to about so 30 maximum historical samples, I only go back previous actual history to maximum of 30 samples. So until I get those 30 samples, I start sort of blending the range estimate with the actuals. And I tend to put the actuals in the lowest of the range estimates to out to remove those out over time and by running this continuously what you end up getting is more and more certainty about how the team is performing so um, don't go back too far because it doesn't matter what your team was doing last year it, mag it matters what it's doing in the last six or twelve weeks and slowly sort of blend in the actuals with your estimates because early on there just hasn't been enough elapsed calendar time for you to see those poor samples yet come in. You know, the high technical debt sprints where you get nothing done because you're just fixing defects. <laughs> they haven't occurred yet. So you still want to leave space for uh, understanding that the worst case scenario may not have happened yet. But you, um, over time, you, you end up moving to 100% team historical data. So the, the blending concept, I think, sounds... It's interesting because... 
what we're working towards, I think, and, and Troy, your mastery of, of this space is far superior to mine, but I think we're, if I've understood this right, we're working towards, it's just law of big numbers or law of averages. Initially, we're not going to have enough data to get there. And so as we blend in our actuals with the simulation, we're still able to get to the point to where the law of big numbers take over and and some of those those predictions should normalize. Early on, it's tricky, but as, like you said, we get the 30 samples or so, real data takes over and, and perhaps that's where we get a more, I guess, stable type of prediction. And am I am I close to that or have I butchered it? No, that's, that's pretty much right. The biggest problem in our world software is that nothing we do in cycle time and task effort ends up being normally distributed. And, and especially the the delivery, final delivery estimate we have, the normal bell curve that you would expect where it's symmetrical around a, the average is in the center. It's the same thing as the most common that doesn't happen in the software world. We have a, a left skewed distribution with a very long right-hand tail. In other words, when things go wrong, they go way wrong. Uh, and that that's a challenge for us. So that's why law of large numbers is hard to apply purely to our field of engineering because we're more in the, the long tail risk world of the Nazm Talibs, the, the black swans, uh, you know, author and so forth. There are a lot of things that can go wrong, which cause a very large delay and very few things we can do to accelerate the project massively. There are a lot more things that can go wrong than can go right to improve our performance. So what we're looking for when we're doing these forecasts using actual data is the realization that the things which went way wrong and take a long time to show up, we won't have samples for yet. So we need to make sure that we, um, we keep an eye on what's not finished yet and have an understand about, well, is that, is that going to be 10 times longer than what anything normally, what the average is? And in most projects, in all projects, there will be something that will be 10 times longer than the average. And that's what makes sort of forecasting software projects so exciting is because we, we don't have a lot of data to work with to make these predictions. And there are these, these events like the production hardware didn't get installed in time or there's one defect left and we can't ship until it's fixed, but we also can't put more people on it to make it faster. There are a lot of things which can elongate the delivery tail of one or two items, control and gate whether we can ship at all. And so... Yes, you're right about the law of large numbers. Large numbers starts to apply with the general easy cases, but what we're trying to do when forecasting software is is always remember that um, we live in a very risky field, and when things go wrong, they go wrong in a in a in a long date way. So, do we take that risk into account, and then with our simulations, do we simply modify the range we're willing to accept, essentially building in margin, right? You, yeah, and it. I tend to use two techniques for that. Yes, build in the margin. Um, now, what when you do Monte Carlo simulation, you're not so much at the mercy of an extreme estimate on any of those ranges. Your job when you do those range estimates is to make sure that the the actual outcome lies somewhere between in the range you say. So I tend to make people be very wide with their initial guesses on those ranges um, because it tends to, just like you're unlikely to flip 10 heads in a row or 10 tails in a row, when you start sort of Monte Carlo forecasting and blending random numbers together, you're unlikely to get all the lowest value and all the highest value. You're much more likely to get a range of values in the center. 
right. so I try and urge people to not be afraid to be to go down to maybe 0.25 to three, because we we're pretty certain that it's going to be within that range. But these risks I'm talking about, I tend to also forecast them in a slightly different way. I, so I tend to get people to give me give me three reasons why this project or feature won't ship on time, and give me the probabilities of those occurring. And if that does occur, how much work is involved in in fixing it? And then what you end up having is there might be a 20% chance, say there was a 50% chance that a feature was going to hit a performance problem. And if you did that, there was going to be twice the amount of work as there originally was to retrofit an indexing server or something to improve performance. Well, now you would have two dates and they'd be very distinct. There'd be the date if you didn't have performance problems. And then there would be a date twice as large as that date, which was when the case of the risk come true that we needed to install an indexing server. So that's if you had one risk of 50%, you now have two modes on your forecast. You don't just have this nice, neat little sort of distribution curve. You have this two peaked, equal sized dates, and they're both equally likely to occur. There's a 50% chance that might be in July. There's a 50% chance that might be in November, just based on that one risk coming true. So now you start to realize that all this time we spend estimating an individual story is absolutely pointless. When one risk coming true could double the amount of time we spend on the whole project. So I tend to spend a lot more time asking people to capture these things that could go wrong and how much work would be involved in fixing those than I do on the original estimates of the range of the throughput. And there's normally three or four major items where it's always the quiet uh, lady or guy in the corner who knows something that you don't about what's going to block the project or feature being delivered that counts. So forecasting is more about understanding what's going to go wrong than what's going to go right. And, uh, it's it's a it's a that's what I find people don't even spend any time thinking about. Yeah, it, it's clearly geared towards an agile project too, right? To to uncover the the scary bits of a project, prioritize them to the top so that we get through them. And I think in that way, we also become more predictable by getting the hardest stuff out first and knowing uh, or confronting some of those difficult pieces head on. So I think that's it's interesting that even through you know. Both of the talks you're giving, it's all about generating insights. Well, and, and I like that part of it. What you're doing is you're doing uh, simulations and metrics just to get insights. And then you can go and make decisions on those that, that, are, that are safe, transparent, and that, and that lead to a better product. And that, that's right. For this example, uh, my coaching insight would be to the team. Um, at the moment, you've got a 50-50 chance of hitting a very wide date range. What can we do to reduce the probability? What can you do as a team to get that 50% chance of performance problem down to 25%? And some of them might say, well, let's do a spike and do some early performance runs. Great. So now you've got, now you've got the teams re- understanding that there and knowing the impact of solving that high-risk item first. So go away and find a way as a team to reduce my risk of a performance problem is a great challenge to set the team to do. And what you get on the management side is you, 
when they get that, that down to 25% chance of occurring or, or even 10% chance of occurring, what you've done to your forecast is now the early date in July is much more likely than the date in November. And that's, that's sort of how you feed back the team's data and intelligence about what could go wrong back into a business risk. And you would deal on a business side, you probably wouldn't go and, and sort of book a, a conference keynote when you had a 50% chance that your product wasn't going to make it. <laughs> right. But if there was only a 10% chance that your product wasn't going to make it, and you could solve that by putting extra money into the team to maybe put a small indexing server in just in case, now you would book that keynote stage because you have a chance of getting there. What's more important is that the team has helped you with data to understand where that risk sits. And that's, that's how I think you need to look at metrics and data and forecasting is it's about getting a shared vision of risk and, and, and how likely things are to occur, not about sort of belting people up with a baseball bat because they're slow. I think that's a great insight for us to to close on today. I mean, clearly these these two talks that you're giving at Agile 2016, very interesting stuff. You know, the data-driven uh, aspects of, of the Agile community are, it, it's not always highly promoted, but what I think you've done and what I really appreciate is I think you've made a great case for uh, digging into the data, being aware of the value it can have on the, the coaching stances and coaching decisions that you make and how ultimately you can significantly improve your program without embarrassing and, and hurting people uh, and just how valuable those insights are. So I, I really appreciate you bringing these ideas to the forefront and I can't wait to, to see both of your talks uh, in Atlanta in July. Oh, listen, thank you. I can't wait to give them. So at this point of the podcast, we ask uh, the guests to plug anything they have going on. Uh, we've mentioned Agile 2016, but any other talks you're giving, books, resources, anything that you would like to get in front of the listeners that either relate to this this conversation or, or to anything else that you have going on? Great. Uh, well, first and foremost is I, about the end of last year, started giving everything away I had for free. So I have a whole heap of resources uh, up on GitHub which are spreadsheets to do staff risk capability analysis, all of the Monte Carlo forecasting. Uh, I have a, a set of spreadsheets which just from the start date and the end date give about 30 different charts based on that data. And these are all free. None of them use macros. They're all safe for the workplace. I just want people to start using them and giving me feedback about what, how they could be improved and where they fit. So I do have, I, I am definitely talking at the Agile conference. I have the two sessions there. I also have a book, Modeling and Forecasting Software Projects. That's sort of also available by PDF form. You can buy it on Amazon if you want the hard copy. You can download the PDF off, off uh, my website as well. So that's, that's, I'd love, it's old and it needs to be sort of updated, but it's got the basics in there. And the only other thing I have is I have a full programming language for modeling and simulating software projects so often i find that once we even do a basic model visually step by step of how work flows through a system we can start sort of doing what if analysis well what if we did half the defect count what 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 sort of throughput improvement would we be likely to see so i'd love people to start using that and that's really down uh, downloadable from the uh, focus objective side as well so they're the main things. Uh, I'm taking a. I'm not traveling much this year. 
<laughs> so I, I don't have a lot of other conferences on at the moment. It's not always bad just spending time at home. So That's right. I live, it, we, we, uh, I live in Seattle, so we get all of our rain during winter, and uh, summer here is, is normally quite nice. So I'm, uh, I'm going to stay home this year. Well, very good. Well, hopefully we, uh, we have an opportunity to say hello out in uh, Atlanta in July and uh, continue some of our conversations. And again, really looking forward to the talks you're giving, as this is an area that it's one that I haven't always been open to. I need to think about these ideas a little more carefully. So really appreciate you providing this, uh, this introduction to some of these ideas. And if you're going to be at Agile 2016, highly recommend these talks as they do give a they seem, especially from the descriptions in this discussion today with Troy, a practical approach to looking at not only data, but simulation and how that can actually influence and coach uh, back up through your team. So I think it's a very important topics that, uh, that help bring professionalism and I think discipline to our profession. So Troy, really appreciate that. Thank you, Rod. And I'm your host, Ryan Ripley. This week, uh, not too many plugs I'll be speaking at Path to Agility coming up here in late May. We'll be out at the, uh, the, at the Agile Conference in Atlanta. I uh, may have a few other speaking engagements coming up, but like Troy, uh, trying to spend some time at home with a newborn baby and the, my other two children and just trying to stay grounded in family for a while. So that's what I've got going on. Just wanted to thank all the listeners. Just incredible amounts of feedback coming in through Twitter, through email, through comments on the on the website. Uh, you guys are all great. You've pushed this podcast into uh, a new stratosphere of success, especially among the the rankings in iTunes and and all of those other measurements and and metrics and data that that Troy we love to to look at. But uh, I think those fall in the vanity metrics uh, category, not so much the the valuable uh, category. But sometimes that happens, and it's allowed to. <laughs> definitely but uh, all of you have been great really appreciate the feedback and comments and uh, the podcast cannot be successful without all of you so thank you for listening thank you for being there and uh, can't wait for you guys to tune in next time with that said Troy thank you again for being here really enjoyed it and I hope all of you have a great day thanks for listening to Agile for Humans let's keep the conversation going drop us a question on Twitter at Agile for Humans or visit agileforhumans.com. Hey, it's Ryan. If you're enjoying this show and want to take a deeper dive into Scrum with me and Todd, check out agileforhumans.com forward slash training. Be sure to also look at the show notes to subscribe to our newsletter, get a copy of our book, Fixing Your Scrum, and learn more about working with us at Agile for Humans. Thanks for listening and scrum on.